This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, doctors call for changes in the expert group advising the federal government on controlling the COVID-19 pandemic. New findings in Alzheimer's disease, which if they pan out, could be the basis for a new kind of therapy. Improving the accuracy of Australian tools for predicting our individual risks of having a heart attack. And with the Victorian COVID pandemic affecting over 100 private residential aged care homes with more than 600 active cases and several deaths, understanding the factors that have created this enormous problem is critical to working out the solutions. There are limits to what we can learn from the United States, but a new study from Philadelphia has found that there is a simple indicator of risk. Professor Rachel Werner runs the Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, and I spoke to her this morning. What we found was that there weren't specific factors about the nursing home that predicted which nursing homes were affected. It was more important what the rates of infection were in the community surrounding the nursing homes. This was the risk of staff bringing the COVID-19 virus into the nursing home. In all likelihood, that is what was happening. Most nursing homes report that there were not visitors coming and going. So what variables did you take into account? There were some issues related to a nursing home having a complaint filed against them that made them slightly more likely to have a COVID infection. Some nursing homes have a higher proportion of poor patients in them, and that was also slightly related to whether or not the nursing home had a COVID infection. And what about for-profit and not-for-profit? So the for-profit nursing homes did have slightly higher rates of COVID infections than the not-for-profit nursing homes. Other people have also looked at this and not found that to be true, so I'm not sure what to make of that. Currently in Melbourne, we've got quite a severe outbreak. And there's a clear relationship here between private versus public. So publicly funded aged care centres are not by and large affected, and it is in the private sector. And what's been suggested here is poorly trained staff, no good infection control and a systemic problem there. Were you able to look at or do you know the level of training, for example, throughout residential aged care in the United States? What standards apply? Yeah, so I wish that we knew more about the types of staff that were at these nursing homes. Unfortunately, we don't. Historically, in the United States, the privately owned nursing homes have had worse quality of care than not-for-profit nursing homes. That's been true for decades in this country. They seem to invest less in quality improvement activities, have lower levels of staffing, and they could very well have lower levels of staff training. But whether or not that's true during this COVID infection, we just don't know right now. So where do you go with that? Because I think 20% of COVID-19 deaths in the United States have been in nursing home residents or staff. People have called them land-based cruise ships. Where do you go from here with the sort of data you've got, at least in the U.S. context? So actually, I think it's about 40 percent of deaths in the United States have been in nursing home residents. And I agree that they are land-based cruise ships. So they are a setup for spreads of infection like these. You know, who's living in nursing homes? Older people who are very vulnerable to this infection and don't do well because of the other comorbid conditions they have. Nursing homes in the U.S. and I think across the globe tend to have a lot of communal spaces and shared rooms. And so they're set up for spread of infection. And even those nursing homes that typically do okay with containing the spread of normal infections haven't done well under the pandemic. And so I think short term to try and prevent this from happening again in the United States or trying to prevent it from, so I live in Philadelphia where the pandemic has waned a little bit, but starting to pick up again. And how are we going to prevent it from happening again? Staff certainly need better training early on in the infection. Also, staff didn't have enough personal protective equipment, so masks and gowns to be able to protect nursing home residents and themselves from the spread of the infection. 
And they didn't have enough ability to isolate residents once they were infected. So I think that if we want to be able to contain infection within nursing homes, we really need to provide more support for nursing homes and the nursing home staff in it. They also need much better access to testing than they currently have so that they can regularly and routinely test all staff and residents and then isolate people when they are found to be infected with the virus. An area of controversy here in Australia is the extent to which you remove people from aged care, residential aged care, when there's virus circulating, but people are saying they're worried about delirium and creating real problems with frail elderly who are being removed. Has that practice been prevalent in the United States where you remove people take them into other facilities to try and protect other people in the residential facility? There has been some efforts to create COVID-only nursing homes. As you said, it can be very traumatic to move older people to new environments where they have higher rates of delirium. But I think because of the lack of support for nursing homes financially in general in the United States, it's been very hard to find safe places to move people once they have COVID-19 infections or even to isolate them within the nursing homes where they currently live. I think the best strategy over the long term is to think more seriously about how we take care of people as they age in this country and across the globe and to try and provide more support to keep people at home as long as they can, keep them out of nursing homes, because I think it's clearly safer for people to be in a home-based and community-based setting. Rachel Werner is at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Kathy Ager is Director of Health Services Research Institute at the University of Wollongong and has a special interest in aged care. Welcome back to the Health Report, Kathy. Good afternoon. What do you make of that study? How different is it here from there? I mean, showing that one of the key factors is, in fact, the amount of virus in the community. I suppose it's the obvious factor. Look, I think there are sort of three issues. The first, which is the one that Rachel spoke about, is the likelihood that COVID gets in. And the best predictor of that clearly is going to be the amount of COVID out there in the community. And then the second issues are about how do you manage the index case, you know, the first one or two people. And then the second set of issues after that is what do you do about a major outbreak? And I think the answers to those questions are slightly different, but obviously... For-profit homes comes up as an issue all over the place. We just heard about the US. The Canadians have published a similar sort of paper. Staff quality and availability, level of experience, numbers and mix, and continuity of staff comes up as a critical factor. I don't think that these are very different issues, and I think we've known about them for a long time but not done very much about them. I mean, let's just go th- through that um, a little bit. The, uh, well, I suppose the core question I'm going to ask you here is, does the mar- have we got market failure in aged care and you just can't expect, expect to make money out of it? It's, it's just not a market that works very well. We did a report last year. We did a major piece of research for the Royal Commission into Aged Care and we looked at international benchmarks for for aged care and we concluded that the best system in the world is the American five-star system as a public reporting rating system. And it's not very often in my career that I've been able to say that the US does something better than we do, but on this they do. 58% of all Australian residents are in homes that would only rate one or two star in the US. Really? Rachel's study talked about So the benchmark of Rachel's study was much higher than ours? Absolutely. Rachel said both her group that got COVID and didn't get COVID, they were both averaging four staff hours per patient day or per resident day. The average in Australia is three hours 
And that's only 36 minutes of a registered nurse and 144 minutes of a, you know, a certificate or, you know, a a very low-skilled, low-paid personal care worker. Who doesn't get much training in infection control, for example, when it comes to COVID. Absolutely, very little training. And you mentioned the Victorian public homes. Those public homes comprise 20% of the homes in Victoria, but only 10% of of the residents because they tend to be small and they tend to be rural. But even even when you can control for that, they've done demonstrably better. They average five hours per resident per day. And what would their star rating be in the American system? Uh, They'd be four or five stars. Um, so we, we actually know what it looks like across the whole country, but only 1% of facilities in Australia would get a five-star rating in the US and 14% would get a four-star rating. So 15% would get the sort of rating that you and I might want to select if we were placing our parents in care. The majority of people are in homes that have very low ratings and in many cases don't even have a registered nurse on the premises 24 hours a day. So just briefly, because we haven't got much time left, it doesn't sound optimistic in terms of finding quick solutions for, for states that want to get ready for, the, for their COVID-19 pandemic, which will no doubt come. Well, I think we've got to do the three things. We've got to look at how we keep COVID out. We've got to look at... Um, what we're doing as soon as we get that first index case. And given the low level of skill, I really support if there's only one or two people moving them out in order to protect the other residents as much as to give them the care that they need. And then there's a whole different question about what do you do in these homes in Victoria where you've got 60, 70 or 100 people infected. That's a different order of magnitude that we really haven't had a conversation about yet. And we will, no doubt. Cathy, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Professor Cathy Eager is Director of the Health Services Research Institute at the University of Wollongong. And this is Iron's Health Report and I'm Norman Swan. 23 doctors yesterday sent a letter to the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, expressing no confidence in the Infection Control Expert Group, which provides national advice on controlling the COVID-19 pandemic. One allegation is that the advice has lacked transparency about where these experts get their information. It isn't evidence-based, and with over 1,000 healthcare workers infected and some doctors in intensive care, the letter says it's put healthcare workers at risk. One of the authors is Dr. Michelle Anandaraja, an infectious diseases physician at a major teaching hospital in Melbourne. Welcome to the Health Report, Michelle. Hi, Norman. Thanks for having me. What advice do you think hasn't been evidence-based from the Infection Control Expert Group? Yeah, that's a great question. So firstly, I just want to tell your audience that I speak for many thousands of healthcare workers around the country who at this moment in time do not feel like their concerns around our safety at work have been heard. So the the major issues with um, the advice and recommendations that have been handed down from this committee is that around respiratory protection, so mask use. So at this point, healthcare workers are advised that a surgical mask is appropriate when looking after patients with COVID or patients who are suspected to have COVID. The issue with the surgical mask is that the surgical mask is a, um, a device which is actually not pr- approved respiratory protection. Um, it's approved to prevent splash and splatter from the surgical feel onto the face of the surgeon. So it's a fairly loose-fitting mask and it's got gaps around the face and air can preferentially flow in through those gaps and potentially infect the wearer. Um, I would regard it as the budget variety of PPE. 
And the issue is that as this pandemic has evolved, it has become clear that there is compelling evidence now to support the notion that COVID-19 is spread through the airborne route. And the problem with these guidelines is that they have not adapted um, to these guidelines. So healthcare workers are still stuck with the budget variety of PPE, the surgical mask, when they should really be, have been upgraded a long, long time ago to um, a respirator, which is a much tighter fitting um, mask that forms a nice seal around the face. On 7.30 last week, the chair of that committee, Lynn Gilbert, said, well, you know, healthcare workers implied don't know how to fit it and a poor fitting mask is not worth the time. And, I, and there is a study which shows if, you're not, if you haven't got a well-fitting respirator mask, it's not much better than a surgical mask. What, how do you answer her point? And she chairs that yeah. committee. Yeah, that's so, so that's true. So um, the respirators are tight-fitting uh, masks, but they have to be um, fit-tested. So that actually means that we need to, you know, shape, faces come in different shapes and sizes, and we need to make sure that when the respirator is worn, that there's a nice seal around the person's face. And that goes through a rigorous process called fit testing. The problem is that hospitals have not invested in fit testing. They've basically put it in the too hard basket, as have this infection control expert group, and said that even though fit testing is best practice and that is endorsed in Australian national guidelines, they've said it's too hard, we're not going to do it. So the message we are getting as healthcare workers is that they don't want to invest in our safety. And I would have thought that during a pandemic with healthcare workers dropping like flies from this infection, some of whom have actually ended up in intensive care and are currently fighting for their lives on ventilators, this is exactly the time to be investing in safety for healthcare work workers. So and I think it's a bit of a cop-out. And, really. and what evidence have you got that any of those doctors in intensive care or, or seriously ill were not wearing uh, respirator masks? Yeah, so this, that's, a, that's a good question. You're really speaking to the transparency around these infections um, for healthcare workers. So we don't have those kinds of details. They're not released into the public domain as to what sort of um, mask respirators versus surgical mask or what type of PPE or what, in fact, the doctors were doing at the time. That, that sort of data, is that really granular data, is held um, behind closed doors. Now, we have argued also in this letter that a really important pillar um, in really winning back healthcare worker trust in this whole process is to make these healthcare worker infections transparent and to make sure that they are adjudicated not by the hospitals or the health services themselves, because we believe that there is a conflict of interest there, but have these infections adjudicated by a panel of independent experts who sit outside of the hospitals, if that makes sense. So what do you want to happen with the infection control expert group, which is largely comprised of hospital infectious disease specialists, people like yourself, in fact? <laughs> That's right. I mean, to be fair, these people are, you know, they're highly credentialed um, academic clinicians. There's no question about that. They're very smart people. But they do come from um, one specialty only, and that tends to, that is basically infectious diseases and infection control. So what we really want to see is a complete reboot of this um, of this infection, you know, group. And we want to see an injection of uh, representatives of healthcare workers themselves. And that usually tends to be people from our professional colleges and our unions. So, you know, so we're not falling into this trap of having guidelines set by people with an academic interest, but without input from the healthcare workers themselves. And in fact, that is actually in keeping with occupational health and safety laws, legislation in this country. So that's the best practice. You have to engage with the people who are actually doing the work and are being put into the risk, risk zone, if that makes sense.
It does. Um, Michelle, mm. thank, thank you for joining us. I'm afraid we're run out of time, but thank you very much for joining us. We'll watch this closely. Thank you, Norman. Bye-bye. Dr. Michelle Ananda Raja is an infectious diseases physician at a large teaching hospital in Melbourne. We asked the Health Minister, Greg Hunt, for his response, and we were told the government will continue to follow the medical advice from the expert advisory groups and the use of personal protective equipment. And he says the position on masks is a consensus one, guided by advice from the Communicable Disease Network of Australia, the Infection Control Expert Group, as well as many other sources from across the medical community. Cholesterol-lowering statins are the most commonly prescribed medications in Australia. Just shy of 13 million prescriptions were issued last year for the two leading kinds alone. But under Australian guidelines, not everyone who needs statins gets them, while others are popping that blister pack every day, even though their actual risk of a major coronary event, like a heart attack, is relatively low. A paper published today in the Medical Journal of Australia suggests measuring the amount of calcium in your coronary arteries, those are the arteries supplying the heart muscle, could help to improve the accuracy of heart attack prediction and therefore better target prevention. Professor Tom Marwick is the Director and Chief Executive of the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute. Welcome to the Health Report, Tom. Thanks, Norman. Thanks for the invitation. Now, this is called CT calcium scoring because it involves a CT scan of the heart. That is correct. So it's it's different from a CT coronary angiogram in that there's no pre-medication with beta blockers required or, or injection of dye. It's just a plain CT scan. And the CT angiogram outlines the arteries of the heart in more detail. That's correct. But, you know, the, the goal here is to look at the early stages of, of coronary disease, if you like, a disease in the wall rather than disease in the, in the actual lumen of the vessel. And how predictive of a heart attack, before we get to your study, how predictive of a heart attack is calcium scoring? Because I've been covering this story for years. And I remember mm. several years ago, near the beginning of this, um, I think I had David Selimar on from the University of Sydney saying there were some serious problems with calcium scoring. What's the state of knowledge now? Oh, I think the knowledge has progressed a lot. So we have some, some large observational studies showing that if the coronary calcium is zero, that is an extremely favorable finding. So the chance of having a major coronary event, a heart attack, or coming to hospital with some crisis is well under 1% per year, probably about 0.5% per year uh, in people who are at risk but have a, have a score of zero. So negative predictive value is very high. The positive predictive value, if you have coronary calcium, of course, having an event is dependent on a heap of other things, but, but the presence of calcium has already declared you as being at risk, as it were. Now, what you did in this study was compare, compare the absolute risk score. So this is, uh, this is like a computerized score, score where you, yeah. you know, your blood pressure, your cholesterol levels, your age, your gender, and so on, and all goes into a mix and comes out mm. with a score of what your risk is of a heart attack over the next five or 10 years. And you compared that to CT calcium scoring. Yeah, so it's part of an ongoing study where we are randomizing people to treatment or not based on this knowledge, and we don't have that information yet. So this is the baseline information. And what it shows is that uh, this is a group of people who, um, by the way, have a family history of coronary disease. So they're, they're certainly very concerned and motivated to sort this problem out. Um, and were at intermediate risk of disease, according to the Australian risk calculator. So that's a, a five-year risk of 10 to 15%. So, so, know, so rather than going hunting and fishing for people at high risk, you chose a group that you knew was at high risk, so you had a good baseline. Well, the interesting thing is that in spite of the level of risk of these people, half of them ended up having a coronary calcium score of zero. Really? And that is, uh, that's a very favorable finding, very reassuring. And 
generally led to a lot of smiles and hugs afterwards because, uh, you know, these people are concerned. So, um, yeah, that is a very reassuring finding. And then, of course, there is the process of reclassifying people at intermediate risk into, into high risk or low risk, which makes the statin decision a lot easier. So when you boiled it down, so, so the core then is you found that the CT calcium score improved the prediction significantly. But how significantly? How much did you move around compared to the fact if your GP had just done the absolute risk score by itself? Yeah, no, we moved around quite a bit. So, um, so there's a reclassification of, of a statin decision in, in about 40% of the patients. So a pretty, pretty significant impact. And that is not just going on to statins, but also reassurance that disease is not there and um, much less l lower level of concern about treating with statins. What's the implication of this? I mean, so the implication is that you refine, oh, sorry, one implication is you, you refine the targeting of mm. statin therapy and presumably other preventive things that you might do for yourself as well. Um, what about the, um, what are the other implications? Does that mean that a GP, say, who's got somebody who's 60 years old and they want to check whether or not they've got a high cholesterol, but does that score you high? I mean, one of the implications here is that um, just a high cholesterol doesn't necessarily mm. get qualify you for statins you've got to have other things going wrong too should everybody have a ct calcium score done well i don't think everybody should do i think its main value is this intermediate risk group which is a pretty significant number of people i mean we're, we're talking about probably you know 30 40 percent of the, the population pretty significant so just describe uh, somebody who fits in so this is somebody who has an absolute risk score from the gp what is that at the intermediate level what does that actually mean what do they score uh, so they scored, they have a, in, so there's some difference between the Australian and the international guidelines here. So uh, our score is very much more conservative. In fact, it's, it's from about 10 years ago. So it was the era when the statins were still very expensive. Um, and our, our intermediate classification is, is 10 to 15% risk over five years. Whereas, for example, the US guidelines, their 10-year their risk is 75 to 20%. So in other words, they finish intermediate risk at a five-year risk of 10%, and we only start falling intermediate risk at a five-year risk of 10%. So the implication is that um, the threshold for starting statins is, is higher in Australia than it is um, elsewhere. And it means that there's more people in this intermediate group where really we, we agonize as to whether they should be started. I think often you know, this so, is exactly the scenario you're talking about, about a single risk factor and uh, uh, the ability to really um, so those uh, clarify are the, the level of risk. So just the bottom line, because we're running out of time, is that those are the people that the GP should do a CT calcium score on? Well, indeed. I mean, at the moment, it is not something that's covered in the medical benefit scheme. And uh, our argument is that certainly for people who have a family history, there is a lot of value as shown here. Thank you very much, Sean. Thank you. Professor Tom Marwick is director of the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne. Alzheimer's disease is the commonest form of dementia and, results, and the results of billions of dollars of research investment have been bitterly disappointing in terms of finding an effective treatment. However, experiments on mice by a group from the Dementia Research Centre at Macquarie University have come up with some promising findings. Professor Lars Itner is the director of the centre. Welcome to the Health Report, Lars. 
Hello, how are you? Now, essentially you're targeting an enzyme which protects nerve cells in the brain from the toxic effects of amyloid beta, and that's one of the two main substances which accumulate in Alzheimer's disease. What did you actually do in this study? So in this, we found prior to this study that this enzyme activity that protects the brain from Alzheimer's disease is actually lost in Alzheimer's disease. And we devised a gene therapy to replace um, the enzyme activity and bring the enzyme back into the brain cells. And when you did that, and these are mice which replicate Alzheimer's disease in some shape or form. Yes, they are. So we genetically engineered them to develop Alzheimer's disease. And, and they're showing signs of memory, memory and thinking problems. Yeah, so their, their ability to form memory and then restore the memory over longer terms is compromised. And this was the gene for this enzyme? So we brought back, it's the, called the P38 gamma gene, which we brought back into the brains of these mice and that restored the ability to form memory. So you actually got healing? So we, we were quite surprised because when you set out with this type of studies, you expect uh, at most that you um, stop the progression. But yes, we, we got uh, far more um, than we set out for. Now, people have tried gene therapy before from Parkinson's disease and other things, and it's quite hard to get the gene therapy into the brain. How do you, t I mean, and, and of course, Alzheimer's disease is quite widespread as opposed to Parkinson's disease. How do you get the gene therapy in reliably? So um, from the early days of gene therapy that have been done in um, Parkinson's disease, the, the vehicles that are used to bring the genes into um, organisms or in the brain in particular have improved. So these days we used um, modified viruses that um, we take the take advantage of their ability to um, infect uh, brain cells and they then deliver the genes um, for us. In the right place. Were there any side effects? So we did um, toxicity studies in our as part of our study and using then you use incredibly high amounts of the virus and we did not see long-term uh, side effects. How do you get something called the blood-brain barrier? The brain is a protected organ and it's quite hard for things to get into the brain because of this barrier. How did you get beyond that with these gene therapies? So uh, with the mice, we, we can take advantage of a modified virus which has been selected to actually passage this naturally. But in humans, you would um, do a single injection uh, like a, it's like a lumbar puncture. It's at the base of your neck and it's directly into the liquid around the brain. So you basically mechanically bypass the blood-brain barrier. There have been very disappointing results. I mean, what happens in mice, particularly in Alzheimer's disease, does not necessarily happen in humans. And there's not a single amyloid beta therapy that's had much effect on the brains, on the people with Alzheimer's disease. Why do you think this one might work in humans when others haven't? Mm. Um, so uh, the problem with the amyloid beta is um, that it um, is now understood that this is a disease-inducing um, pathology but is not um, required for the progression of the disease. And we are we targeting here actually the tau protein specifically, which is… Uh, it's, the other, um, it's the other thing that comes exactly. back. Exactly. 
Yeah, and that is uh, responsible for the progression of the disease. So it's actually moving away from the amyloid beta as a drug target, which has failed in the past. Now, with COVID-19 around, we're getting used to the language of clinical trials and mm. accelerating trials. When are you ready to go to phase one, which would be a safety trial in humans? So preclinical um, experiments have actually uh, been completed for this particular um, study and the next step are in fact um, phase one clinical trials and we're currently working with Macquarie University and their commercialization arm to um, yeah, find the right partner to move forward into clinical trials. Fascinating. Well, we'll follow that up when you do. Thanks for joining us. It was my pleasure. Professor Lars Itner is director of the Dementia Research Centre at Macquarie University. You've been listening to The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan, and I'd really enjoy your company next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.